0: Yeah. everybody, and welcome to Decades of Cinema Podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian, and we're ready for episode number two. Last time out the gates, we had a lot of fun. In the first episode, we covered 13 decades, but now we're going to go to our current and ongoing format, 10 decades, the 1920s through the 2010s. Sean, since the last episode, we have started a presence on
1: social media. Yeah, we have a Facebook page now. Uh, You can just search for us on Facebook by searching decades of cinema or it's just facebook.com decades of cinema you can also get to us on decades of cinema.blogspot.com. you can
0: also subscribe to us on iTunes so I think that covers the bases
1: yeah and uh, one other note about the iTunes download we're gonna try and put chapters in so if there's any films in here you haven't seen and you don't want us to spoil them for you you can just skip ahead to the ones you have seen and just hear us talk about those yeah so that's cool and also decades of the cinema at
0: yahoo.com that's a way to reach out and contact us you can suggest films both for the show as well as the rapid fire review segment that we will do at the end of the program and you can also just uh, send us your uh, fan art be it macaroni art or sculpture or whatever yeah, anything you want yeah <laughs> we will dig it so sean i'm gonna go ahead and jump in uh, i start off this episode with my first pick i got the even number years and you got the odds this time so 1920s we'll get it started here the big parade 1925 silent film directed by king vidor what an awesome name by the way oh yeah don't see a lot of kids named king these days but (laughs) best known for his film war and peace his adaptation of that also and this was something i had no clue about he was the uncredited director for the kansas scenes and wizard of oz oh wow very interesting. The movie itself centered around an idle rich boy who joins the US Army and is sent to France to fight in World War I. There's three sort of central subjects in the film. One, his befriending of two working class men, construction worker Slim and bartender Bull. Also, there's finding true love with a French girl and experiencing ultimately the horrors of trench warfare. So that's kind of the three segments or central themes of the film. It is considered groundbreaking for not glorifying the war or ignoring its human cost, exemplified best by the lead character Jim's loss of his leg from battle wounds. Sometimes it is proclaimed the most successful film of the silent era, grossing between 18 to 22 million dollars worldwide. In 1992, Big Parade was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And now my personal thoughts, Sean. I like this one a lot. Offhand, it might be my favorite of the 10. Kind of caught me by surprise. 4.5 stars out of five is what i scored it all the different layers worked so you had the romance you had the chemistry and the bond between the men at war there was a particular scene sean oh if you might recall it where the guys were walking through the woods when they got called to the front line the panorama just the the vista the the composition of them walking through this kind of sparsely wooded forest it was just Breathtaking, Like, it was one of the true visuals in recent cinema that I've seen that right. just, man, I would have put it up on my wall. Honestly, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. You called it before I did and kind of said, you know, hey, this is pretty good stuff. We were actually at a diner with another friend talking yeah. about movies. So that kind of got me intrigued as I went in to screen it myself and absolutely floored me. In fact, I think you liked it so much that you picked another King Vito movie for a future episode of Decades of Cinema. Right, the crowd. Which what we'll be getting to, I think, about? around episode five. So, yeah, like I said, this film, the romance, stuff worked. The war stuff worked. The trench warfare scenes were definitely ahead of their time, being that this was 1925 and influenced a lot of other war movies. I I really like this one, Sean. What about you?
1: Yeah, we can talk about that scene in the forest again. Mm, Absolutely. Like you said, I thought it was really beautiful the way it was shot. It was um, a tad unrealistic because you you got your three main characters walking straight toward the camera. There are guys behind them getting picked off one by one by the German soldiers. It was kind of done... In a way that might not be realistic to the war, but because, you know, these guys are making it through while guys behind them are getting picked off. It's that kind of style that really works in this film. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah almost operatic. It's just a stunning visual. Also kind of the nervous monotony of trench warfare like overnight when you're sitting there in a foxhole right, and it's kind of like a a lull in the fighting. You can't really pop your head out or stretch because you might get hit with a bullet. You don't experience obviously unless you've been in war but it brings you close to that experience and kind of how those men deal with it.
1: Right. So while it might be unrealistic style wise, I think it is that style that kind of gives you a better sense of what it was actually like yeah another scene you know is uh the barrel scene i thought Mm. that was really hilarious it reminded me of Chaplin. yeah like you were saying about the romance this film you know it's a film about war but it's got this romantic side to it and absolutely what i was thinking the entire time was you know these two things are really well balanced in the film you know you got a long section of romance but it's still you know it's what these guys were doing when they were in foreign countries right so it still relates back to the war and then after the romance kind of breaks up which is amazing by the way the way they handled that you get a longer section that shows just the war but then the film kind of brings it all back around to the romance yeah, which really full nice. Circle. And you know the the French girl in the kind of in
0: the farmhouse countryside as they're waiting to kind of get into battle it's interesting because your three main characters Jim, Bull, and Slim are all kind of interested in her and it's kind of funny yeah. as they kind of play for her attention. I like the two side characters Jim's you know friends bull and slim yeah slim has this very almost elastic jim carrey face yeah and he sort of does add some comedy relief to the affair and there's some heartbreak too on the battlefield i mean just an excellent film you know i think preconceived notion getting into the 1920s as we've dug deeper for this project it's like oh i've seen a couple silent movies that i really like and i've seen a lot that are a bit you know dry or dull you kind of think that you know maybe you've seen the best of the best but the more that we kind of watch some of these movies i find myself you know continually impressed i I've watched a lot of war movies and in fact i'm gonna be talking about another one i selected for this very show right but this one ranks among the best war movies i've ever seen
1: yeah like it's
0: it's in my maybe top three it could have possibly bumped the uh apocalypse now read the out of the top three but yeah it's you know this and Thed red Lionhearted two that immediately popped to mind as, as as the best ones i've seen
1: i rated it a five I really enjoyed it. Like you said, it might be the best film on this podcast, which kind of stinks because we're starting with the best. <laughs> well, we've got time to go, so <laughs> let's see what happens next.
0: Uh, Sean, uh, take us away to the 1930s.
1: With the 1930s, we have 1932's Vampire by Carl Theodore Dreyer. <laughs> In German, its title is Vampyr the Dream of Alan Gray. Alan Gray being the character we follow who studies the occult and finds himself in a village that's under the curse of a female vampire. He and a servant of the house he stays at have to stop the vampire and her underling from converting anyone else into vampires. This movie was based on Sheridan Le Fanu's short story collection in A Glass Darkly. Dreyer had read the book and decided to adapt some of the short stories into this film. And some of the stories actually sound a lot better than this movie. (laughs) you got ethereal monkey demons a dwarf stalker vengeful spirits monstrous doppelgangers there's just so much fodder for surreal horror films in there yeah that sounds like an amazing anthology horror film that needs to be made (laughs) pronto right it seems like all dryer got from the stories though was the vampire side and in the story it's actually a lesbian vampire and the idea of being buried alive this was Dreyer's first sound film, which proved to be a challenge for him. He had to record the film in three different languages, English, French, and German, and that's why there's a lack of dialogue, but it still has some title cards. And this film was originally negatively received by audiences and critics, and has long been considered the lowest point in Dreyer's career. Ouch. I wasn't aware that it was that much of a misfire, at least at the time. And it's since gained a much more positive modern following. Nicholas de Gunsberg, or his pseudonym Julian West that he used in the film, he was the one that financed the film in exchange for playing the lead role. Most of the rest of the cast consisted of non-professional actors, and some of the crew that worked on The Passion of the Joan of Arc with Dreyer also worked on this film. The entire film was shot on location, meaning they didn't use sets created in studios, which is pretty odd for a film of this time period. Another note on the uh, cinematography, Dreyer wanted to give the film a washed-out, fuzzy, Soft focus, so they held gauze in front of the camera while shooting. So, you know, we've talked about how it was kind of negatively received back when it came out, and I don't think either of us really cared too much for this film. Yeah, what, what, what kind of star rating did you put on this one? I gave it a three. I did really like the visuals in the film, but as far as the plot goes, it's pretty stale.
0: Yeah, I think three is probably generous. <laughs> um, I didn't write a lot of notes on this shot. I think this is, of the ten, this is the first one that I saw for this podcast, so it was probably about a month back that I did watch this. I thought it was sort of campy, which I was surprised by. I expected a drier film, uh, drier the director, <laughs> that is, because, and I want to specify, in my opinion, from what I've seen, the best silent film of all time that I've experienced thus far is Passion of Joan of Arc, which you Reference. it's a Carl Dreyer film and it's got the most expressive acting performance possibly I've ever seen in the role of Joan of Arc but his masterful touch on that film it's unparalleled like it's it's truly probably one of the greatest films ever made not just silent I, I shouldn't you know put it in that category alone yeah and so, seeing that he was doing a vampire movie, kind of a gothic horror film, I was like, God, this is going to sweep me off my feet. Right. But honestly, it felt a bit cheesy, and it actually was less atmospheric than either Dracula or Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And so, that's where I kind of kind of, I had a problem with it. There's also a, a gimmick used throughout the film where they're reading exposition from a book. I found it to be kind of a cheap or corny device Right. Uh, that they relied on a bit too heavily, where the you know central character would sneak away and refer to this book and you know, show his text instead of actually having it displayed in the film itself. I I gave it two stars and you know I was a little disappointed in it. I expected more especially given
1: that the director is obviously a
0: phenomenal talent.
1: You know another thing that I really actually did enjoy about the film was its use of light and shadows. They seem influenced by the German expressionism movement in film which started a decade before this film. So if you've seen films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari yeah this film's kind of got that same style. There's shadows going in different angles and everything. It's really cool. But yeah, I wouldn't go into this film thinking it's a horror film. You're not going to be scared at all. I would call it maybe Arp House horror.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: Because it's got a really neat style to it, but it's lacking in plot. Yeah,
0: yeah I think ultimately underwhelming. Well Sean, if nothing further, should we move to the 1940s? Sounds good. Cool, for the 1940s, we're gonna look at a film titled They Were Expendable.
2: Listen, sister, I don't dance. I can't take time out now to learn. Oh, Smokes it's, oh, it's cook, you call that soup? No, sir, that's dishwater.
0: Anchors away. They Were Expandable is a 1945 American War film directed by the legendary John Ford, best known for his film The Searchers and Grapes of Wrath and Stagecoach. It stars Robert Montgomery and John Wayne. It's based off of a book by William L. White relating the story of the exploits of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3. That's a mouthful. And they say it multiple times in the film. Uh, It's a PT boat unit that defends the Philippines against the invading Japanese during World War II. The film is noted for its uh, verisimilitude that is the appearance of being true or real given certain actions depicted in the novel and film did not actually occur in reality it's very patriotic sean it's uh, almost a jingoistic film i would say less a well-rounded film on the nature of war than a rallying cry to kind of drum up support in the country it earned two academy award nominations for best sound recording and best visual effects and it lost both and it's funny because <laughs> i looked into the best visual effects things just out of curiosity and kind of a slap in the face to they were expendable it lost to a movie called Wonder Man a Danny Kay and Virginia Mayo musical oh wow (laughs) ouch Big Parade which we talked about earlier from the 1920s was 141 minutes Why this one's 135 minutes not that much shorter I felt with Big Parade it had earned each minute of its running time Why this got to be a bit repetitive and a bit of a slog definitely also, Sean, and this is kind of hard to describe unless you've seen the movie itself, I felt like it didn't have real smooth transitions, like a flow. Mm. It kind of transitioned from segment to segment, kind of arbitrarily, like it didn't have a really great beginning, middle, end, like a, a very smooth, I kind of felt like there was almost broken into to chapter. I only gave it 2.5 stars. I feel like maybe historical significance or seeing, you know, a fairly young John Wayne, like I could see how people would put this a bit higher than that. But
1: as a, kind of on its own, I didn't think it merited a, a higher score than that. That. right i gave it three stars i'm kind of debating whether i should just drop down to two and a half because you know i didn't really uh, care for it all that much
0: what would you say maybe just um throw you out a question here off the top of my head what is the best thing that it did like what is the best thing going for this movie if you could put a finger on
1: it well one thing we didn't talk about with the big parade which we probably should have was that that film actually was made in cooperation with actual military oh okay yeah. And this film is made with cooperation of the military, too. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, maybe this film tries to be a little more realistic than The Big Parade. But that was what I enjoyed most about The Big Parade yeah, maybe it loses. Style.
0: Yeah, maybe it loses something to that. Because it does have a pretty flat, you know, compositions and whatnot.
1: Right. And I actually had no idea that, you know, this wasn't a true story. I went into it thinking, you know, oh, this is something that actually happened. But it's actually only based on events that happened.
0: Yeah, apparently the main characters are based off of real people, but in terms of the events themselves, some are maybe exaggerated for fictional purposes. You know, you do kind of feel like this, you know, because they did work with the Navy and and other military uh, offices, you do kind of feel uh, almost like a recruitment film, but you do kind of feel like a sense of being almost on the ground with the people, especially like when an air raid or something's happening and they all have to run into position or or get ready to get to the war. I thought it was interesting showing the kind of gung-ho nature of a lot of these guys who are kind of waiting by complicitly. it's like, hey, who's going to get sent out to battle? These guys weren't, you know, afraid. Right. They were actually angry if some other boat got caught into action. Yeah. That's they wanted to go out there and fight for their country. And so I assume that that's, you know, in large part true because there was a, a strong, you know, very passionate base of, of people at the time. Maybe much different than now. I don't want to get too political. But uh so it, it did kind of give you a glimpse, I guess,
1: into a different time pretty well. There's a bit of a love story kind of happening there like is. the big parade. But unlike the big parade, it's not handled as well. No, I, I didn't find, you know, John Wayne
0: gets laid up. and I believe it's a nurse, but yeah, their chemistry wasn't there, and John Wayne didn't strike me as a particularly likable character in this. He was kind of, you know, a bit of a jerk maybe, I don't know. He was very set in his ways and kind of a hard man, as was his captain, which shows you, you know, a certain glimpse into these people, but I actually did hear too that John Ford was pretty tough uh, on the set. Mm. He's known as a stern taskmaster, but specifically on John Wayne, because John Wayne had no prior zero military experience. Yeah,
1: John Ford was actually, you'll see him in the credits as Commander John Ford, USNR.
0: Yeah, he wanted that credit. I haven't seen a lot of John Wayne movies in general, and so I can't really place this in the pantheon of of great John Wayne pictures, but uh, I know The Searchers is one of both him and John Ford's biggest hits. Right,
1: and that's the other thing about this film that I thought was interesting. It's John Ford and John Wayne, who had worked together in westerns primarily. Mm -hmm. Now they're trying to do something more modern with, you know, a modern war. So it is interesting to see them tackle a different Yeah. but I don't know that they were successful. Yeah, ultimately, I, I don't believe they were. Maybe at the
0: time, but again, looking at it on its own merit, artistically now, it does feel a bit soft
1: and dated. Okay, let's just move on to the 1950s. 1955's Night of the Hunter.
2: Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, This pretty fly. But one day she flew away.
1: Night of the Hunter is a film by Charles Lawton. It starts with two men who have murdered people. One's a family man named Ben Harper. He's caught for uh, robbing a bank and murdering two people in the act. The other is Harry Powell, a self-appointed preacher and serial killer who marries women only to then kill them. He gets caught for possessing a stolen car and the two stories collide in the jail cell the two men share. Upon finding out his cellmate robbed a bank, Powell intends to find the cash that must be hidden somewhere on the family farm. And the rest of the film is his infiltration into Harper's family and struggle to obtain the hidden money. Only Harper's children know where the money is and they're not about to give it up. Night of the Hunter has three well-known actors and actresses in it. You got Robert Mitchum, who I think I've only seen in 1962's Cape Fear, which I really enjoyed. And it's kind of a similar film. And Shelley Winters, and we're going to be talking about her in a future episode when we talk about Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. And actually another actress that we've already discussed my girl Lillian Gish Yeah, good old Lillian Gish. It's great to see her again. Broken Blossoms, 1919 film. It was one of our first films on the first episode. So we've discussed uh, Charles Lawton on our show before too. Uh, We saw him acting as Gracchus in Kubrick's Spartacus. And this film is the only film he's credited as having directed. It was not a success when it was first released and that probably made him shy away from directing any more films. Lawton for this film was supposedly influenced by a German expressionism in film again. I didn't necessarily notice that too much when watching, but now that I think about it, some of the interiors, especially like that attic scene, they feel constructed, and it's filmed to accentuate the angles and things in the construction of
0: it. Yeah, I think bizarre shadows, stylized dialogue, distorted perspectives, surrealistic sets, odd camera angles are kind of the things that it did in in that vein, and those were used to create a simplified and disturbing mood that reflected the sinister character of Pal, Nightmare fears of the children in the sweetness of their savior Rachel. So that was something that I subconsciously picked up on it wasn't until I later researched it that it kind of clicked and made sense like right. oh I can see kind of how they
1: were doing that. Yeah. There were some original songs created for the film including Lullaby and Pretty Fly which was originally sung by the little girl named Pearl in the river scene. I would say that's one of the neatest scenes in the film. They redubbed the song with the voice of another actress who sounds a little too old for the <laughs> little girl yeah. but it didn't bother me because you know the song's really kind of it's slow and moody and it fits so well within the scene
0: and i think pretty fly was adapted uh, in the late 90s is pretty fly for a white guy oh yeah, all yeah. i think that was their
1: <laughs> source of inspiration for that that diddy <laughs> that's a joke uh, That's it's terrible <laughs> And another note on the music of the film, they kept using a leitmotif where Mitchum's character, Harry Powell, sings a hymn called Leaning on the Everlasting ah, yeah. Arms, and then that announces his presence. So I don't know if you've seen the film M by uh, Fritz Lang. I'm very familiar with it, but I've not yet screened it. In, in that film, the uh, main character kind of uses a whistle to announce he's coming. So okay. this is a thing that films kind of started doing, and I think it, it's kind of neat to have in a film Oh, I thought it was very effective in this one. Sean,
0: I uh, I like this one a lot, man. I gave it three point five stars, and I could see it ranging in the four category. I'm not sure what you had. Yeah, I, I gave it a four. Excellent. It's a film that I was familiar with before we did this for the show, but I had never seen it. I was familiar with, you know, his love tattooed on one hand and hate on the other. That's right. a very iconic. It's it's made its appearance in other things and popped up and, and homages. And yeah, uh, I'm sure
1: it's a uh, popular tattoo in tattoo yeah. shops now. <laughs> I, I, I'm not.
0: Yeah, I'm sure uh, it has been done countless times over the last couple decades. It was nice to see Lillian Gish again. Aged quite a bit since we saw our last in Broken Blossoms from the first episode. Robert Mitchum, as you mentioned, as the serial killer, was fantastic. Chilling. Really one of the best. Really just atmospheric. And I liked a lot of the shots in the movie. Like them going down the Ohio River when the two kids, almost like Huck Finn, you know, tucked to a makeshift raft. In the foreground, you'd have almost an extreme close-up of like a bullfrog or something. Right, yeah. You know, it was kind of an artistic, you know, it wasn't just like, well, let's set up a, you know, a shot. Kind of a wide shot of them coming down the water. It was interesting. I like that. It's influenced a ton of other films, Sean, a lot of modern stuff. Uh, the most notable for me, just because it's a personal favorite, I really love the director David Gordon Green, most known for uh, All the Real Girls and later on some stoner comedies like Pineapple Express, but he did a movie in 2004 called Undertow, which is a very direct homage. It also kind of homages my favorite film director Terrence Mallet because it does use quite a bit of voiceover. and I think he may have executive produced it as well. So check out Undertow if you like Night of the Hunter. My last little tidbit is that Roger Ebert wrote about it. Quote, it is one of the most frightening movies with one of the most unforgettable of villains and on both of those scores it holds up well after four decades. And I'd absolutely agree with uh, the esteemed Ebert on that. This is a really great movie. Yeah, it's Very certainly, effective. certainly uh,
1: pack some suspense in it. I was thinking, you know, it feels almost like a Hitchcock film, but I'd say it almost has more style to it. Yeah, which, which I prefer this to most of the Hitchcock that I've seen. He had already been making similar suspense filled films So, you know, I don't understand why audience is, at the time, took so bad to it. Because I know
0: since I've been of age, you know, I've heard it taught in critical circles and amongst cinephiles and held in very high regard. So it was kind of interesting to find out that at the time it didn't do so well.
1: Yeah, it's kind of saddening to know. It's a cool classic. Since it didn't do so well at the box office, you know, it kind of detracted lawton's career he stopped making films basically yeah and if
0: this was his
1: first effort we can only imagine what else he may have had in store we'll have
0: to uh, assume shot anything else on night of the hunter nope i think we've covered it cool let's take a trip into the groovy 60s up next is la dolce vita Italian for The Sweet Life or The Good Life. Uh, It's a 1960 comedy drama film written and directed by Italian director Federico Fellini. Uh, You've probably heard of Fellini if you're a bit of a movie buff. The story follows Marcello Rubini a journalist writing for gossip magazines. Over the period of seven days and nights that are not exactly necessarily joined in order, this film does kind of play with time a bit interestingly, but on seven days and nights of a journey through the aforementioned sweet life of Rome and a largely fruitless search for love and happiness. And there's plenty of debauchery. It's a movie, I think, uh, ultimately about excess. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival that year and also an Oscar for Best Costumes. It's broken into seven principal episodes as well as a prologue and epilogue. My favorite of those was The Second. It dealt with a long, frustrating night with an American film actress named Sylvia, played by, I believe, a Swedish actress, Anita Ekberg. A stunning, voluptuous beauty, <laughs> if ever there was one on the silver screen. Yeah. I like their scenes together the most, and I think they probably have some of the more iconic scenes together from this film. Entertainment Weekly listed this as the sixth greatest film of all time. The film list that I uh, refer to often is They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? And their Greatest 1000 list, which I use as a reference to Almost Daily, they have this currently at number 31. Wow. Which is still a really great ranking. So it's definitely a very critically acclaimed film. In fact, the most critically acclaimed film on this episode. An interesting side note, a more modern thing, but it's kind of an interesting anecdote I found. Sofia Coppola borrowed uh, a little bit from this for her film Lost in Translation, which is one of probably my five favorite movies. In that film, the characters of Charlotte and Bob, played by scholar Johannesson and Bill Murray, they meet in the middle of the night together at one point in the film, and they watch the famous Trevi Fountain sequence while drinking sake. So it's kind of a direct ode to it. Coppa in an interview said that when she was younger she saw that movie La Dolce Vita on TV while she was in Japan it's not plot driven it's about them wandering around and there was something with the Japanese subtitles and them speaking Italian that was a truly enchanting quality for her and I can kind of see how you know this movie in part could have influenced a bit of Lost in Translation right yeah kind of running around and soaking in the nightlife and trying to kind of live in the moment and make sense of it all and kind of a pursuit it's hard not to score this film highly even if it might not be your personal cup of tea and it's not a film that I could see myself revisiting a lot. It's quite long. It's at 180 minutes. But ultimately I fell four stars. That's where I nailed it.
1: Yeah, same for me. And I had a hard time trying to decide how I would rate this because it is so long and the plot is, like you said, broken up so jaggedly. And there is a lot of
0: analysis and kind of film studies, people that have looked at that. I didn't get into that in my description because it's a bit more detailed and if you haven't seen the film, it probably couldn't follow that. So so I, I kind of left that off the board but yeah there is um, something to be said for its just disjointed nature right. there's more to it than just a simple gimmick
1: I think you mentioned the fashion in the film the costumes it, it, yeah it, it won. won an Oscar
0: because I think it was nominated for two Oscars but the only one that it won was best costumes
1: so I've seen a few other Fellini movies and I think the fashion that he uses is one of the things that you notice the most in his film and this film is probably the most fashionable film that he's done that I've yeah. seen yeah, uh, there's so many party sequences.
0: Right. It's kind of one of the main elements of the movie.
1: I noticed in the version we watched that was restored, Yeah, the one, of the, one of the sponsors is Gucci, uh. which is kind of interesting. It's funny that Gucci would sponsor it because I feel like Fellini is criticizing that fashion.
0: Yeah, I think there's maybe a bit of cultural commentary about, you know, excess and that kind of New Italy at that point. Right. There's kind of a juxtaposition, too, because one of the very first shots and probably one of the more iconic is this statue of Jesus with his arms outstretched that's being flown uh, and transported via a plane. And it kind of goes over the beaches and you kind of immediately go from that to right down into the gritty world of the kind of party
1: scene. and Right. The guys in the other helicopter that are kind of following that story, they get distracted by a group of bikini clad <laughs> women.
0: Which there's plenty of, yeah. And like I said, the character himself, Sean, how likable is he as a character? Like, he kind of goes on a journey, but like by the end of the film, it's almost, I think I liked him less than I did at the start. I mean, granted, his job is to kind of follow tabloid news, so that puts him in kind of some unsavory positions, and he has to do some dirty work. But I mean, by the end of the film, he's riding a terribly inebriated and drunk woman around the floor of what was basically... (laughs) a forebearer yeah. to an orgy and kind of smacking her around. Like by the end of the movie, I kind of didn't like the guy too much.
1: Right. You know, it's, it's weird in that now that you mentioned that last scene, I feel like he has been through so much in the rest of the film. He's like maybe desensitized. He's just breaking his... down at the end there. Yeah. It's just, you know, a complete breakdown of everything we've seen, which is really neat. But yeah, back to the Jesus flying over yeah. Rome. It's like you have this ancient traditional art that's flying modernly. Over a city that's known for its artistic history. I just thought that was a really neat image.
0: This is a pretty dense movie, and I'm sure, like, historians are Italian film, which I did take an Italian film course in college, but people could probably do a whole podcast on just this movie that, you know, had researched it and, and really dug deep into its themes. I
1: did read something. Brunello Rondi, Bellini's co screenwriter and longtime collaborator, he once said, The fashion of women's sack dresses, which possess that sense of luxurious butterflying out around a body that might be physically beautiful but not morally so those sack dresses struck fellini because they rendered a woman very gorgeous who could instead be a skeleton of squalor and solitude inside whoa i thought that was a powerful quote and it kind of shows that feeling of the whole film he's criticizing outward appearance versus inward morality right and you know it's like saying the clothes don't make the man but they do make him look good.
0: Yeah, and, you know, that morality you just touch on, one of the more hard-hitting segments of the show where a friend of his who kind of has a more kind of standard life, two kids and a wife and a bit more domesticated, you know, our main character gets a little break from all the debauchery and kind of says, wow, I really like what you have here. Like, this sounds great. Not to spoil too much, but... That family kind of meets an untimely demise. And again, you you kind of see this vision of domesticity and how nice the regular life, so to speak, could be. But even
1: that gets kind of shattered. Another thing was, you know, the Catholic Church actually kind of banned this film. They really did not take to it. And, you know, I'm wondering if they just saw that first five minutes of Jesus flying Mm -hmm. overhead and they were like, nope. Yeah. That's it. The interesting thing is, you know, Fellini is actually commenting on society's moral degradation. Right. And, you know, you would think the church would kind of be all about that. Yeah. But instead, they go and, you know, they condemn the film. So it shows, you know, sex and other immoral acts, but it's not promoting them. Right. I don't think. You do see the kind of dark side to that life. The ending itself is kind of a
0: nice little sweet moment, but I don't want to maybe say too much about it, where you see a a character from earlier in the film kind of make a reappearance i want to say uh, lastly at least on my end of things is that there are some great gorgeous deep black and white visuals in this movie so even by hour three which i finished at about 5 a.m this morning <laughs> you know even why it was getting kind of late into the picture if nothing else you kind of do get desensitized to all because it's three hours of kind of benders it does kind of wear you down but if nothing else i could just look at the rich visuals right. and th- there are some gorgeous uh, cinematography and camera stuff in this
1: so he's kind of saying you know is the sweet life really all that sweet yeah that sums it up so let's move on to 1970s with 1975's picnic at hanging rock by peter weir
2: what we see and what we seem about a dream a dream within a dream
1: This film is one I had seen on Mark Cousins' series, The Story of Film, which I'd highly recommend to anyone that's into film. It's kind of like this podcast, only better. Anyway, this was one of the films that they touched on that had me wanting to see it so bad. And I'm finally glad I got to check it out through this project. It's about a group of schoolgirls in the year 1900. They go on a field trip with their teacher to a location called Hanging Rock. And do you know what happens at Hanging Rock, Brian? The girls have a picnic. They do. At Hanging Rock. They also get a bit bored because rocks. A group of girls decides to take a hike around the area, but not all of them will return. One of their teachers also vanishes in what is an unexplainable event. Which End is based, again, I think you mentioned it, but on a real event. I have to stop you. Oh, later It I'll isn't. Be- it isn't a real event. It's not. No. Oh, I've, I've seen this film through the lens of mediocrity. <laughs> It was based on a book, okay, that purported to have a real event, uh, okay. but <laughs> but I think that's a really good point about the film. It makes it feel like a real thing yeah. that happened, and it's completely unexplainable. It's almost you know science fiction the way it happens.
0: Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm, I'm gonna sit over here and stun, uh, you know, awe while you continue,
1: Sean. <laughs> but anyway, the rest of the film sees the town and the school coping with and trying to understand what's happened on Hanging Rock. But yeah, like I said, it was based on a 1967 novel by Joan Lindsay of the same title. And it's interesting to note that Lindsay originally gave permission to a 14-year-old boy named Tony Ingram to film this film. Wow. And about 10 minutes into filming that, she had sent him a letter or something. They had only recorded 10 minutes. A cease and desist uh, order? Yeah, she said, you know, you gotta stop. I've optioned it to Peter Weir. I thought that was really crazy. My and,
0: question at this point is, where can I get that to? Minute cut. Uh, I
1: actually watched about three minutes of it on YouTube. Holy
0: cow, it does exist! Yes,
1: it's crazy. And well, what I watched was him commentating over the film.
0: Oh, because the 14 year old kid is now probably what?
1: Yeah, 68. Or... Yeah, it's all in black and white. Mm. Surprisingly, the visuals in it kind of look exactly like this film. I don't know what else you can do with a bunch of girls sitting on rocks, yeah, that would make it look different, but it looks kind of similar, wow. which is crazy. I'm learning a lot here, too. But yeah, Picnic at Hanging Rock is one of the earlier films in the genre of Australian New Wave. The director of photography on the film used bridal veil in front of the camera lens to achieve the hazy blurred glow seen in the film. So this is the second film in our episode where somebody has, you know, masked the lens of the camera to achieve like a blurry kind of soft focus.
0: And I can see that. That is noticeable. I didn't think of it while watching it, but I can certainly,
1: yeah. From the very beginning of the film with its lighthearted yet eerie pan flute music and its extremely elegant cursive font and the voiceover narration that paraphrases. Phrases Edgar Allan Poe. What we see and what we seem are but a dream. A dream within a dream. You could tell this is straight up art house film. Yeah, when, almost like an art house fairy tale. Yeah, when you describe it, the plot sounds like it's going to be this suspenseful mystery, but the film completely disregards genre for something else entirely. It's still a mystery, but there really isn't that much suspense. And, you know, it takes quite a while for anything to actually happen in the film. But the setup is actually pretty amazing, I found. The characters keep speaking of hanging around. Rock as this dangerous place and they're foreshadowing what we know is going to happen. And then there's another scene where they're cutting a cake at the rock, and it's this giant knife just digging into this. Slowly piercing this moist sponge cake. It's like mocking horror films almost, but it's got such a serene nature to it. It's it's beautiful. So then then we get into the actual disappearance of the girls, and we don't know why. We're not shown why or how they disappear, but the film keeps giving us clues but are they really clues we don't really even know they it keeps like taking us down different right how reliable yeah the narration we're getting is right then there's a couple of different themes that the film's trying to comment on there's this recurring theme of time versus nature and it's interesting that time seems to always be moving in the film but nature like the plants and rocks things that we consider stationary so you got two things like time's moving nature which has like a stillness to it and yeah it makes for a very you know moody film and then another recurring theme deals with sexuality after the girls go missing the one that survives is examined presumably for signs of rape another girl returns and the same examination is done on her and they keep saying you know oh she's intact Good. But it's odd because this examination that they do is kind of forced on them without them saying, you know, oh, we were attacked, which the film kind of hints at to some extent it makes no, you it, does. it yeah. makes you think you know these two guys that are kind of watching them having their picnic it makes you think oh these guys are definitely the ones that are killing these girls dragging and their bodies away i
0: recall one of the girls when she arrives back at the school as they're kind of examining her they say you know she has a large abrasion on the head and they say could it have been suffered by a blow and so you're thinking well
1: yeah somebody may hit her with a you know a giant stick or something Right. Yeah, the rape examination itself feels like a rape of these girls because, you know, we don't know what's happened to them. It's crazy how much is put on the sexuality. Yeah. And there's definitely some unethical things happening at the school. And the the, the stern
0: kind of headmistress is definitely an evil person by my definition of the term.
1: Right. And it's also interesting to note, you know, there's no nudity in the film, but it's so sexual. Yeah. The whole thing. Is from the very first shot, it's it's like it's, it's just crazy. Kind of, yeah. So one question I wanted to pose was, did it bother you not having any resolve to the disappearance? It's funny that you mention that because uh, one of the anecdotes I want to throw
0: out is a direct kind of response to that. So Peter Ware, the director himself, recalled that when the film was first screened in the U.S., American audiences were disturbed by that very fact that the mystery remained unsolved. According to Ware, quote, one distributor threw his coffee cup at the screen at the end of it because he'd wasted two hours of his life, a mystery without a goddamn solution. That's the quote. (laughs) And well, I don't see those type of reactions as strongly today. I have read about similar modern films. Uh, an example that I'm going to cite is uh, Kelly Reichardt's film, Meek's Cutoff*. About a guy that had seen it in the theater, wrote in his review that a lot of people kind of like grumpily like walked off mumbling under their breath, like, you know, well, we don't know what happened. Like, that was a waste of time. Right. I, as a filmgoer, don't need everything wrapped up nicely in a bow because sometimes there are mysteries in life and it's, it's true to that. So to me, absolutely, it didn't bother me whatsoever, but uh, I could see how maybe some more traditional film goers especially of the time when there's maybe less experimental films available to wider audiences could have had difficulty with that you wonder but that sense of mystery makes things more intriguing if right we, if they told us at the end well yeah this
1: is what happened i think it would actually have hurt the film right it creates a continuous dialogue in your head that yeah kind of makes you ask what really did happen and you can never explain it to yourself there's right. no explanation you, the film you can't is. give you can't figure
0: out the true explanation you can come up with your own theory, which maybe what is suggested to do, but being that this was a 1970 selection shot, I will say I did watch it with a faux afro on my head and it (laughs) did kind of get in the way of my glasses at at some points. I had trouble seeing the screen, but the Hanging Rock itself in Victoria, which is where a lot of this was filmed, just gorgeous. And the way that they shot it brought it to life a lot better than just like a static camcorder. I mean, they really artfully displayed the the rock and kind of the surrounding area where the picnic. I mean, that stuff was just beautifully shot. And just as a fan of cinematography, I really dug that. I'm going to bring back up Sophie Coppola. She um, borrowed heavily from Picnic for her productions on both The Virgin Suicides and also her period film, uh, Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Sean, I gave this 3.5 stars, but I would have no qualms with it being rated higher. I actually think uh, upon a repeat visit, which at some point that could definitely happen for me, I could see my score going higher. The only thing, I guess my only minor pick to knit, so to speak, one of the things that I had trouble with on the last episode, one of the films I liked the most, Hiroshima Monomore, one of my my criticisms of it was some melodramatic acting. And there is a few moments in in this film Mm -hmm. where the acting could have probably been turned down a couple notches on the dial. Right. There is some really great subtle acting in this film as well. But there are also some moments a bit more on the nose. Right. That didn't really play into my score or anything, but just uh, something I wanted to mention as a minor criticism.
1: I had to go with five on this. I really enjoyed it. I gave the big parade a five too. I would say, you know, this probably is a step below. So I could go like four and a half. It was just the perfect amount of of weirdness for me yeah which is what i go for in film yeah
0: well we can talk weird wacky and wild with my next choice if you'd like that sounds good 1980s we're gonna look at night of the creeps i
1: got good news and bad news girls good news is your dates are here
2: what's the bad news
1: they're dead
0: Okay, Night of the Creeps, it's a 1986 American comedy horror film, cool genre, written and directed by Fred Decker. If the name doesn't sound familiar, you might recognize him as the director of the beloved Monster Squad. Mm. He also wrote the story, at least, for the film House, which is one of my unheralded favorite 80s horror films. Oh, wow, I really dig House. So the movie, to describe it, is a bit hard to do because it kind of brings in together a lot of elements, uh, but right. I'll take a crack at it. In In 1959 an alien experiment crashed to earth and infected a human the body was frozen but now in modern day which is the 80s two geeks that are pledging for a fraternity accidentally thaw the corpse which then proceeds to infect the campus with parasites that transform their host into killer zombies that's a lot yeah it's an earnest attempt at being a b-movie while simultaneously paying homage
1: to that genre One quick quote from the movie itself. Detective Ray Cameron in the film, he actually says, what is this, a homicide or a bad (laughs) B-movie?
0: That earnest kind of fun tongue-in-cheek element is consistent throughout, which makes for a fun ride. It's not serious in any means, but it does weave in quite a lot of things from genre. It weaves in zombies, slashers, and alien invasions. Decker was quoted to have said that he tried to have included every single B-movie cliche that he could think of. Yeah. And he insisted on directing the script, which he wrote in a week himself. Wow. So he worked quick. Originally, he wanted to shoot it in black and white. It did not, similarly to Night of the Hunter, perform well at the box office. But it (laughs) developed a huge cult following in later years, which I think deservedly so. This is a really fun movie. And I'm surprised at how familiar, like, being Monster Squad and kind of films of this era. I was a child of the 80s. I had heard the name maybe in passing, but I had no real familiarity with this movie. And I feel like, you know, it's unfortunate. It took me until my 30s to see it because I think I would have loved this movie as a child, as a teen, whenever I may have discovered it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, There is an alternate ending. I won't get too far into that because it really depends on what version of it you see. I think the most common one is the one that I saw, which is currently on Netflix, which I believe is the alternate ending, so I don't think there's a major difference. I enjoyed it a lot. I also want to kind of tell a personal tale. Um, I originally started to watch this movie in the middle of the night on a recent trip uh, when I was down in North Carolina, standing in a buddy's place and i was actually doing it with a guy i had just met that day a radio host djd of dark entries radio which is on wusc uh, fm 90.5 in columbia south carolina he does kind of a goth radio music program on saturday nights and is pretty well beloved he and i made our way back from a party and we were staying in a mutual friend's place and we were kind of flipping through netflix and we saw the cover art for this and it kind of jumped out at us and neither of us i don't think had seen it and so we put it on, and it was late at night, so we, we didn't really intend to finish it. But watching that first 20, 25 minutes, I was like, wow, yeah. this is some great 80s cheese. Right. This is a lot of fun. And so I kind of like bookmarked it in my mind. Like at some point, I, I got to finish this movie. Mm-hmm. I also don't like to watch movies partial way anyway. So just the OCD nature in me probably would have seen me watch it. And then when I was looking for an 80s pick for this second episode of Decades of Cinema, I figured, man, let's... Let's do Night of the Creeps. Sean, what did you think about it? First
1: of all, back to, you know, just watching the first few minutes of it. Mm-hmm. There's something that happens there that I kind of wish they had explored more in the film. The aliens that you see, they're like these naked, bulbous creatures. <laughs> and I really wanted to see more resolution with them. Like, go back up into that spaceship, see what they're doing. Because we never really find out. Yeah, and that it feels like it was made on cheap. Uh, right. You see these kind of clunky alien suits. But it's that so are, hilarious. It is. Man. It's a
0: lot of fun and they shoot these kind of ray guns on board the ship. It looks like somebody tried to recreate, you know, the interior of like a ship from Alien, but for about 45 bucks. Yeah.
1: Another thing, I don't know if you noticed, but I kept hearing some of the characters' names mentioned. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I did. One of them, think... you know, is Chris Romero. And then you got Cynthia Cronenberg. That's the one I think that I noticed. <laughs> yeah, Cronenberg. Because that's a not a very common name. There's like a whole list of names that they drop that are all... Horror filmmakers. Yeah, you, shout outs and homage. To this you team. got Ray Cameron, who's James Cameron. He made Alien Film. Mm-hmm. Then they attend Corman University, Roger Corman. Right. It was just hilarious to see and hear these so, names drop. It's a giant love letter. Right. You know,
0: and I don't know if I mentioned my score. I don't think I did. uh I gave it 3.5 stars. Same here. It's a lot of fun. I can't think of too many people who want to enjoy this
1: right uh movie a more modern film that you might have seen uh cabin in the woods kind of does the same sort of thing with the horror genre yeah it starts as horror but then it takes it in every possible direction yeah so i guess we'll move on to the 1990s with hard eight by paul thomas anderson So I'm a huge fan of Paul Thomas Anderson's film Magnolia and I've kind of been working my way back through some of his older films that I'd missed. Uh, I recently watched Boogie Nights finally, but I've seen, you know, There Will Be Blood and The Master. That only kind of left me with one more film to see His, his very beginnings, his first feature film hard eight and it's kind of a hard film to explain because the plot kind of goes everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time which kind of sounds like his other films if you think about it but it begins as sort of like this oceans 11 knock off a casino kind of film which you're thinking oh these guys are going to knock off a casino they're talking counting cards and all this right that's what it's going to be but no it, cuts that script it turns into a story about a couple who are in trouble with the law and the process of cleaning that mess up and that also kind of gets cut off as they get sent away and kind of focuses more on the cleanup process and that's interrupted by this blackmail situation so some of the actors in it you know you got philip baker hall who's also been in some of anderson's other films john c Riley also in, in other anderson films oddly In this role, you have Gwyneth Paltrow and Samuel L. Jackson. It's kind of funny, a little pun. You mentioned blackmail, and
0: the blackmail in the film does do (laughs) blackmail. Samuel L. Jackson.
1: Yeah, there's also a brief cameo by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Which, probably not his best role, because it's only very short. But had he been in the film
0: (laughs) Sean, I just want to interject real quickly before I forget. You mentioned the term in describing the plot as cleaning a mess up. And that kind of is how I feel about the movie itself. Yeah. It was a bit of a mess that
1: needed cleaned up a, a
0: bit.
1: There were some things I did enjoy. You get to see kind of Anderson's beginnings with his cinematography style. He does long takes and they're always like very fluid. They use a lot of steady cam. You see the beginnings of that in this film. The acting is okay. I mean, I I really enjoy uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley. It was I don't cool know if, to
0: see a, a movie populated with mostly character actors. Right. Uh, that was one of my uh, only brief notes on it. I did like some of the scenes quite a good deal with Sydney, who was played by Philip Baker Hall, with Gwyneth Paltrow. There was one particular one at a diner where they kind of have not so much a heart to heart, but she does kind of open up a bit. And but so there is some good, you know, little nuggets uh, throughout uh, of acting.
1: I don't think this was the right role for Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't think she was the this right kind of hardened, for- yeah,
0: prostitute. <laughs> she came off some fairly clean, you know, roles. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if this was within her range at the time. I'm not sure.
1: Right. Hard Eight's essentially Anderson expanding on a short film he made in 1993 called Cigarettes and Coffee. And that was a series of vignettes connecting people with a $20 bill. So it's like he's kind of taken that format of the vignetting into this film and it really doesn't work because the plot plot just gets chopped up way too much. Yeah. But you know that being said, he must have done something right because he was able to find studio backing to make his next films and yeah, and get he, his foot in the door. He's made some pretty good ones since. Yeah,
0: I'm a fan of his later work, uh, but seeing this one, I thought it was a bit of a misfire. You know, the first two thirds of the film are a bit meandering, but I don't, I like that stuff more. Just, you know, there's a lot of scenes, you know, sitting in the cafe area of a casino where not a lot's necessarily happening. That stuff, I didn't really mind. I was kind of enjoying the kind of slow, almost meandering pace of that. Right. But by the time the third act hit, I felt that it was rushed. Yeah. A lot happens as far as plot development in the last third. And uh, by that point, I don't know if it was just... Disassociative properties or whatever, but I really stopped caring at the third act, which is when I should have cared the most. Right. There's a term that Armin White, the the famous critic, uses called the American eccentrics, and he's it's a label for millennial filmmakers such as Wes Anderson, Spike Jones, the third mention today of Sophie Coppola, uh, and Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson. The reason I bring that up is because and this may be a bit of a stretch, but it kind of reminded me of another of those filmmakers' first entry, and that would be Wes Anderson with Bottle Rocket. Hmm. because you have a group of everyday people that are sort of getting in over their head yeah. and having to deal with the consequences. Um, I think that film is far better than this. Wow, yeah. That would have been a, a home run, whereas this was probably a ground out or
1: maybe a yeah. single... <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's definitely not going to wow you if you've seen any of his other films. But, you know, the reason I sought it out was it's just the beginning of his career.
0: No, it absolutely makes sense. And as somebody that's never considered myself necessarily a fan, but have have enjoyed uh, quite a few of his movies, you know, I guess I was, you know, a bit curious about where he got his start. For me, my only takeaway really is just the performance of, of Philip Baker Hall, who's kind of an older guy, a bit of a character actor, not really a leading man, right. a, a face that you might recognize as a bit player but not somebody that's really anchored a whole movie on his shoulders and yeah he kind of gets the opportunity to hear and i think he does a commendable job and so his work in this picture
1: was probably my favorite takeaway i did see him do a film where he was the lead yeah called duck it's Never pretty it. horrible it's yeah him, it's him walking around with a duck wow he talks to it yeah it's it's horrible is it a comedy <laughs> no is it's actually comedy? surprisingly dark <laughs>
0: This is interesting. I might have to pop it on the queue. Well, I got to tell you, Sean, hate to do it, but my score on this one, and it dropped a lot during that. It was kind of coasting, kind of a middle of the road thing. Right. Until I got to that last act, and that's when I dropped off. And so my score also accordingly dropped, and it went down to
1: 1.5 stars. I gave it a three just because, you know, I really wanted to see where he started. And I think some of the performances were good. My only gripe was the plot just totally got chopped up.
0: Yeah. Okay, Sean, let's uh, jump into modern times, the 21st century. We're going to hit the 2000s. Up next is Notorious.
1: I put hoses in NY onto
2: DKNY. Miami, D.C. prefer Versace. All Philly hoes know it's Moschino. Every cutie with the booty for the coochie. Now he's the right. real dookie.
0: All right, I'm bouncing in my seat, listening to that music. This is the 2009 American biographical film, Notorious, about the life and murder of rapper Notorious B.I.G., directed by George Tillman Jr., probably best known for Men of Honor, and then I think he produced the Barbershop movies, hmm. and he did a movie a year or two ago with Billy Bob Thornton and The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson, called Faster, hmm. which Didn't really do it for me. But there's many reasons why on this podcast we will pick films. And this one is kind of a pet choice. It had been one that I had kind of wanted to see out of curiosity, but it had been escaping me for quite some time. I had it, I think, multiple times from the library, and my hold lapsed, and I'd never watched it. (laughs) And so it was one of those movies that... It's kind of been on my radar for maybe two years or more. When I got to 2000s for this episode, I figured, hey, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone and make this my selection. And so it's kind of interesting, I think, how we go about picking these films. A lot of times we refer to, you know, film lists of great movies and whatnot. Sometimes it's just an oddball choice. As a fan of late 80s and early 90s hip-hop, I was interested in the story and seeing it adapted for the big screen. I'm going to go ahead and kind of jump into a bit of my criticisms as well. I did feel it was a bit sensitized. Yeah. I gave it a 3 Three star score, and I almost went a little bit lower because of some of my issues with it. But I felt the story did need to be told. I'm not saying that this was the best way to tell it. Also not the worst. And there was some good work turned in by the cast. I think specifically uh, Angela Bassett, who plays Valetta Wallace, which was Biggie's mom. She yeah. was pretty good in, in, in a role. <laughs> Notorious B.I.G.'s story alone is one of interest. I mean, he was a hardened drug dealer that was making money to survive in the streets of Brooklyn. You know, bed, sty do or die where uh, one of my favorite movies, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing in 89 took place. in, And he goes from a, a drug peddler uh, and a criminal to a superstar, like yeah. literally in the homes and ears of millions of people across the world. I remember the first time I saw one of his videos, I was just kind of captured by his charisma and his lyrics. So we get his kind of whole story from childhood to death. And that's not a spoiler alert. He was killed <laughs> in a shooting. Kind of peeks into some other things that I was not as familiar with as far as his story, specifically some of the romances in his yeah. life. There's kind of a love triangle.
1: Yeah, I had no idea he was with Lil Kim.
0: Yeah, so there's two big pop stars that he was involved with. There's Lil' Kim and then there's Faith Evans. Lil' Kim was kind of his friend kind of coming up from the streets, and he kind of introduced her and kind of got her foot in the door into the hip hop industry. And they were lovers and kind of, you know, but it was kind of a quarrelsome relationship, both kind of fiery tempered. Then he meets on the photo shoot, Faith Evans, who has this dyed blonde hair, and he kind of compared her to almost a Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And he took a shot and introduced her himself and they hit it off and and pretty fairly quickly ended up married but he never fully let Lil' Kim uh, drop but there's also Jan who was his girlfriend from before he was a superstar who he has a child with so there's a lot of romantic entanglement Biggie was kind of a shitty person to the women in his life. (laughs) They didn't kind of smooth it over. Like, they they showed that without going too far one way or the other. But I mean, his mom, who who supported him, you know, he wasn't the best son to her. I mean, he did do some things. You look at the women of his life, including his daughter, and it doesn't paint the most pretty picture, but I, I guess it's trying to be accurate, which is good. Yeah. You know, we want the true story. There's another segment about the movie where I don't know if we're necessarily getting the truth, and that's the Tupac stuff. You know, so Tupac. Tupac and him were friends. Later on, they become rivals. Tupac, when he was shot the first time, said that he felt like Biggie had set him up. Biggie's later shot. This is complicated. We don't know all that. It's an ongoing investigation. It's never really been settled exactly. But we are certainly getting the side of things from the bad boys group, which is Sean Puffy Combs, who was involved in this film, as well as, you know, the Biggie estate so the Tupac stuff how it was handled I don't know man Tupac was played by Anthony Mackie who's a great actor who I've enjoyed in some other stuff I think he did the role pretty well that's something for me that was a bit more of a complicated thing
1: Yeah, I think you're saying you know we're only getting the one side of the story but it's interesting that the story doesn't paint Biggie as a god necessarily he has some issues and they show that in the film it's definitely an interesting situation it's still a mystery to everyone about what happened and i think that's one of the biggest draws of the film to kind of try and figure out what happened i only gave it a two and a half i personally haven't delved too deep into uh biggie's catalog of music or anything i've heard a couple songs here and there but Mm -hmm. and the same with tupac but the one thing i do know about them is this east coast west coast feud that happened and the murder of the two and how mysterious it is and it definitely does make for a good film to see that kind of happen but i don't know if this film itself actually deals with it as and well. and dealing as it with could you
0: know that event in the tragedy
1: it almost feels like that is more
0: lent to a documentary film right or yeah. non-fiction filmmaking
1: i think i would have taken to a documentary at least about better. that
0: angle i mean obviously they couldn't ignore it because it's a central part to both of their myths
1: yeah one other quick note uh did you know Christopher Wallace Jr. actually played young B.I.G. in the movie. Oh, yeah, his son. Boy, I
0: know, I didn't realize that. His son
1: actually played big in the film when he was was a kid yeah
0: with the glass wow i didn't yeah that's neat it's also sad to note biggie died when he was 24 tupac 25 never really thought about that until i heard it while i was watching the movie and that really kind of hit me hard like wow these guys were young you know yeah very young as far as the biopic goes you know this is no ray this is no walk the line like i said earlier about it being kind of sensitized or or maybe sanitized it does have kind of a, a gloss to it that kind of feels like maybe it was made for tv almost lifetime Yeah, Derek Luke, uh, who's another actor who's phenomenal, and Antoine Fisher as Puffy Combs. I mean, it's kind of goofy seeing him dance around. It's hard to kind of mythologize a guy in a film. You have to choose your battles. I'd give it three point, or sorry, three, kind of a middle of the road. I am glad to have finally seen it. And like I said at the beginning of my introduction, I do feel like his story deserved to be told. And so they took a crack at it.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it was the best shot, but
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. We can play the what-if game, but at least they got the story out there. I haven't heard anything about it as far as the reception of friends and family, but I imagine since you know Puffy was involved, they gave it the thumbs up and greenlit it.
1: I think his mom was
0: actually one of the producers too. Which is cool, yeah. Yeah. I mean I haven't read anything recent, but through the course of the film she is a breast cancer survivor, which is awesome. So notorious, I can finally mark it off my list. Yeah. Um <laughs> And I subjected you to uh, some crack cells and yeah. a couple steamy scenes with Lil Kim. And <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that leaves us with our last film for today.
1: Yep. Let's move on to the 2010s with 2012's *Maniac* by Frank Calhoun. <laughs> I'm a pretty big fan of Elijah Wood's career, especially his early career. I know he's a little older than I am, but I feel like I grew up with him on the screen. Fun fact, in 1988, Wood got his first break in the music video for Paula Abdul's Forever Your Girl. Do you know who directed that music video? No fincher david fincher how did you guess that i know he did some
0: music (laughs) video work wow maybe i had read that at some point it was launched somewhere in my memory bank that's awesome kudos for me i thought that was crazy a full jeopardy point
1: but yeah he went on to do movies like radio flyer north the ice storm which is a great movie and another film i'm pretty partial to deep impact i really enjoyed that and then he starred in a little set of films called the lord of the rings i marathoned them once yeah Ended up in the hospital. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it seems like he's been trying to break out of his past roles and do some more edgier stuff. I think he just had something out in the past few weeks or months with a former porn star, torn actress, Sasha Gray. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's had Wilfred, which is kind of a, it's a TV show, but it's kind of got a darker Darker, side uh, to it. But yeah, Maniac is actually a remake of a 1980 film of the same name. And that film actually inspired the song Maniac that's famously used in the movie Flashdance. Which is really odd because it's a slasher film. (laughs) Anyway, it's shot with a first person point of view through the eyes of a psychotic schizophrenic serial killer who murders women and uses their scalps as hair for his collection of mannequins. That's all I can say about it. Apparently, Elijah Wood was pretty proactive with the filming of the movie. So since it was from his point of view, his character's point of view, he needed to be on set at all times. They kind of discussed the difficulties in making a film entirely from a first-person point of view.
0: Although, I take a little issue with that because it does seem like sometimes it does kind of go away from it. There's a specific incident that really kind of drew to mind where he's stabbing a woman right? (laughs) and the camera kind of does about a 180 degree spin where it's now facing him kind of head on as he's finishing the job. So there are moments when it does definitely leave his POV of his eyes.
1: That was kind of one of my
0: detractors of the film.
1: If you're going to make a first person point of view film, I feel like you should just go all or nothing. Right, I think it
0: you know it was kind of a cool gimmick but it wasn't utilized to its best ability so i think calfoon the director should be nicknamed calfoon the buffoon <laughs> cuz he uh, that was a wasted opportunity but no i i didn't have a little bit of issue with that as well yeah
1: another thing that they try and do a little too frequently is they use this gimmick where they show the mirror Mm-hmm. and it's supposed to show us you know elijah wood's face so it looks like he's looking in the mirror there's no camera there and you're yeah. actually in his head it's something that a lot of films have been doing lately and i feel like it's getting overused a bit yeah
0: most recently, Jake Gyllenhaal as he smashes a mirror in Nightcrawler, one of the mm. better films of 2014. You know, the POV gimmick. I almost feel like it would have been better utilized in uh, a better film. I yeah. kind of daydreamed, and it's hard to play fantasy director, but, you know, I kind of daydreamed up in my head this movie that's this place during the 80s about like an arcade, like a horror film that kind of takes, you know, I don't know. But that was kind of where my mind was wandering. I think I came down a bit harsh on my score. I'm looking at it now, and I'm, I'm wondering why I went as low as I did. I only ranked it at two stars i think because i enjoyed the gimmick but like ultimately i guess i find it to be fairly lifeless like i don't think it's going to have a long shelf life it will be known for that and there are a couple images that might stick with me for a bit but over the course of the film including its kind of central Almost romance i kind of got a bit disinterested it's not a particularly
1: long film or anything i had a quick thought the director is quoted as saying the audience gets to experience for the first time how sick it is to commit murder we're certainly not condoning it but making a real statement about serial killers so one quick question is do you think this film's actually making much of a statement about murder and the ma- mental state No, it almost feels like
0: it's glorifying it. I mean, because we're served it on on heaping helpings on a silver platter. So I don't know that I would say, I mean, I can see that being a blanket statement, but I don't know that it has any authenticity. There are a few scenes that certainly are going to make you squirm and kind of recoil in in horror. There's a, he scalps a lady on her bed while he drives a knee into her back. That's a a pretty tough sit. You know, it's kind of uncomfortable viewing for anybody that's not a sociopath. But it didn't make me think like, man, murder's bad. I knew that going into it.
1: I think to some extent, the first person point of view kind of added something to that. It's something you don't see a lot in horror films.
0: One of the first girls that he kind of all he's kind of like strangling her during sex. And like at first, it's almost like she might be into it, like kind of a foreplay thing until he realized that she's, you know, asphyxiating. So I don't know. I don't know if that was a way of covering his ass. Kind of I don't want to, I'm not
1: trying to blast the guy. I already call him a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yeah. trying to discredit the guy. For I think it's crash, kind of but. taking a lot from, you know, video game culture. Sure. Where you play first person that, shooters. Yeah, sure. But I think video games probably do it a lot better for people. You get to control the movements and everything. Right, this you're film, not carried
0: along on the ride. Yeah, this one you're kind of, you're strapped in and taken on the ride. Yeah, right. you don't have much of a say.
1: I gave it a three star because, I, you know, there's a lot of gore in it and it's really bloody i like that stuff it was i think uh
0: if i did knock my score up it wouldn't be much higher maybe a 2.5 because i did have some issues it's one that i I was kind of curious about seeing so i definitely wasn't opposed to checking it out on the auspices of the podcast Sean, does that wrap up our 10 decades?
1: I think we've covered 100 years of cinema. Excellent.
0: What we're going to do now is rapid-fire reviews, and we're going to try to keep them rapid. I think on the first episode, maybe a little long in the tooth, Uh, we want to keep these short and sweet. We also want you guys to participate and pick some of the movies for us. Decades of Cinema at yahoo.com.
1: Or just leave a quick comment up on Facebook. Or Blogspot. blog spot. Yeah, so yeah.
0: definitely hit us up and suggest however many films you might want us to consider for rapid fire reviews. So Sean, you and I are both going to pick a couple movies rapidly and, and review them. Yeah. Do you want to kick us
1: off? Let's start off with one you watched this year. my on me.
0: Oh, wow. That was a low blow, man. Well, we just skipped, you know, foreplay and went right into it there. Martyrs, uh, 2008 horror film, which I got a lot of slack from the letterbox community for giving it a low score. Oh, yeah. Probably I've got more comments on that review than any. And it was almost all people challenging me to, to defend my position and telling me that I had seen the wrong movie and that I you know didn't understand it. And I didn't really want to answer back uh, to them at all. I didn't feel I owed an explanation. It's directed by this guy called Pascal Lager. And it's part of what's considered the new French extremity movement which I'm not a huge fan of, but there's other films within the movie I've seen, which are much better, including Demon Lover, uh, Enter the Void, which is actually really good. Also High Tension, which is also kind of a squirmy, you know, violent horror film, but it does have tension. There's just something I got to say real quick uh, about this movie that really changed my perception of it, and I found it to be one of the most absurd, surreal things I've ever seen on a DVD. There's an introductory video clip with the director, but instead of just saying, hey, this is my movie, and he almost apologizes for making the movie. Oh, wow. (laughs) So strange. He basically comes on and says, you know, I don't really know why I did this. I, I, I'm conflicted about having done this. I don't know where I stand, like my ambiguity as far as morals. He basically comes out and says, you know, I'm sorry for doing this. Jeez. <laughs> it, that was my take on it. It's about a young woman's quest for revenge against people who kidnapped and tormented her as a child. She leads one of her friends, who's also a victim of child abuse, into a journey which ultimately brings them into the living hell of depravity. I won't go into any great detail about the things that are suffered by these people, but it's, you take that turn torture porn and just imagine turning it up to 30 oh yeah the first third of the film you know there's kind of a vengeance thing so you can at least get behind While she's you know going after her former captors and why it's very vicious you know you can kind of have some understanding or footing the last third of this film is one of the most vile disgusting you know uh things i've seen where essentially it's it's a 30 to 40 minute sequence of just a girl being brutally tortured and beaten down and ultimately, it's supposed to prove a point, which I won't even try to describe because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think that it ever gets there or earns that. I gave it maybe a half star when I scored it. It's definitely a controversial film. If you are a fan of kind of extreme films or if this, for whatever reason, sounds intriguing to you, I mean, yeah. you can seek it out. I do like horror movies, and I don't mind stuff that maybe tips the scale as far as, like, ultraviolence, you know, within, you know, certain parameters. But this one uh, was... a. Big fail for me. Yeah, I think I'll have to check it out. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yet. and see it for yourself. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. For you, Sean, up first a film I have not seen: 2012's *Being Flynn*. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, *Being Flynn* is a film I really enjoy. It stars Paul Dano and Robert De Niro, and it's a drama about you know a young man and his father who's a writer and is struggling to make a living now in his older age. De Niro's character finds himself going in and out of homeless shelters. And coincidentally, Paul Dano's character, he's having a hard time finding work. He starts to kind of work for a homeless shelter himself. So he kind of gets this shock when he sees his father in these homeless shelters working at. it's a really good dramatic film i think towards the end i i shed a couple tears wow yeah it's a it's a good film to see yeah
0: that's excellent i I remember seeing like some previews for it and it's got a good cast i don't know it just kind of fell out of
1: my mind yeah i know that you gave it
0: a a good score and might have to check that out
1: de niro you know he gets to do some of his outbursts in it but i think his acting in it is really well done Does it reach the levels of his dramaturgy and uh, Meet the Fockers? (laughs) Meet the Fockers. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, yeah. This film is definitely a different side of his acting career. Cool. So the next rapid-fire review, yeah, I'm going to hit you with Life Itself, the Roger Ebert documentary. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, I actually saw this on the big screen at an art house theater in greater Cincinnati area, the Marymount. It was interesting to see it in that way because there was a bunch of old ladies in Tara Row that sat behind me. Oh, yeah? And it was kind of interesting how that played. If I was by myself, I may have been a bit more detached from some element of it. But when all the bad news is coming out, uh, you know, and his wife. Is kind of, you know, trying to deal with him and and try to keep him alive and keep him, you know, live support or do whatever she can for her husband. You know, the the old women behind me were reacting to each, you know, bit of news and information as if it was like a baseball game, you know. And so that emotionally brought me into it more than had I saw it as an isolated film. It's a uh, 2014 American biographical drama about Roger Ebert. And it's, interestingly, it's directed by Steve James. That might not mean anything to you, but if you're a fan or if you followed Roger Ebert the last couple of decades, as I have, a film that him and Gene Siskel championed and basically got widescreen distribution just because they championed this little film that could, this little Chicago documentary called Hoop Dreams. Its director, Steve James, you know, they did a big thing for his career and he's continued to make documentaries and he was brought on to, to adapt the memoir, Roger Ebert's Life Itself. And so mm. that was kind of cool with come full circle. That's kind of a neat little moment. Yeah. It was really good. Good, Sean, it's one that when it becomes available here, I would imagine shortly on home video. I would recommend you know, if you are a cinephile or just a movie guy, it's good to see, and also it's just a good human story. I gave it four stars actually, so yeah, I scored it fairly highly. One of the interesting things that you're gonna get with life itself, besides getting a lot of cool background information on Ebert, you're gonna get to see him and Siskel, and they go at it like cats and dogs. I mean, yeah, yeah they had this kind of on the show where they would argue, you get to see behind the scenes footage. These guys, oh man, these guys were going at each other. Like they almost needed probably security on set to intervene. Like, These guys would really bitterly, you know, but there was like a, it was, they loved each other, but they Mm. fought like brothers. And
1: you could see the passion.
0: Yeah. And and it was just cool to get a glimpse behind the curtain. Yeah. But yeah, as a movie fan and really loved reading Ebert's stuff, I thought he had a very humanist approach. And there's some great quotes I won't recite, but are in the movie where he kind of, you know, describes what he thinks cinema is and the power of movies. Just great stuff. I'll check so, it out. Yeah, that's a good one, Sean. Next for you and last, uh, we're gonna go to 2004. Jonathan Glazer's film *Birth*. The reason I picked this movie is because Jonathan Glazer is a, a name that's on the tip of a lot of people's tongue for his 2014 film *Under the Skin*. Mm. And so, a lot of people are going back and checking out some of his earlier work. I will also say *Birth*. Uh, I saw on the big screen as part of a triple header yeah i watched three movies all with one word titles in one day uh not by design necessarily but i started with birth then i saw alfie with jude law then i saw ray but yeah talk to us about birth your experience with it
1: i had heard about the film but i had never never actually seen it so i decided to finally check it out and it stars nicole kidman it's about a woman whose husband passes away and not too long after that she encounters a child who claims to be her husband reincarnated which is just you know that that right there sold it for me. Yeah, right? I mean that's a plot. Yeah, that's That's an interesting Yeah, and you know things just get weirder and weirder from there it takes you on a ride you don't know whether this kid's telling the truth you don't know who else in her life has been honest with her and she kind of falls for it and it's just crazy to see this downward spiral it's yeah it's fascinating i
0: haven't seen the film since it I saw it in the theater, so it's been over a decade, and yet I remember some scenes, like almost like a chamber drama, where she's like amongst all the relatives, and they're just so aghast at this little child in in the home that's claiming to be, you know, their yeah. their son or their their brother, and here he is just calmly sitting there. I mean, it's really interesting, and it has, I think, a common theme, at least in his last couple movies, Glazer. That is a chilliness. Yeah, that some people are describe are kind of comparing to some of Kubrick's work, which is I know a bold thing to do opening up that kind of uh, can of monkeys. Yeah. I think with Under the Skin, he's certainly achieved that kind of level. But this movie, too, has a very chilly, cold demeanor. And Nicole Kidman's maybe never been better. She's a phenomenal actress, I think, and just seeing her in
1: Dogville
0: and in this and a bunch of other great movies, mm-hmm. even bigger budget things like the others, she brings a lot of pathos, too.
1: Yeah, I, I gave it a four-star rating, and I would say I think I enjoyed that film, Better than Under the Skin. Under the Skin is probably a weirder film. But, you know, I think Birth, you know, its sense of realism with the weirdness kind of accentuates that surrealism.
0: Yeah, I I like them both. And I also liked, uh, which is a bit of a different tone, it's a bit more of a dark comedy drama Sexy Beast with Ben Kingsley, which is also from Blazer.
1: I I have to see that, yeah.
0: That uh, I encountered when I was working through the greatest films of the 21st century. It was on the list, and uh, I rather enjoyed that, too, from him. So Mm. definitely interested to see what he does next. Right. All right, Sean, I think that wraps up the second episode of Decades of Cinema. In January, you and I will be back in the studio, knocking out one or maybe two episodes of the show. We've already got a lot of research under our belt, a lot of films screened. Yeah, uh, We've been staying very active, man.
1: Once again, just check us out on Facebook. Facebook.com slash decades of cinema. Definitely hit
0: up our official homepage, decadesofcinema.blogspot.com.
1: And check us out on iTunes.
0: Yeah. Thanks for all the support. Please send us, you know, any feedback and, and stuff like that.
1: We're gonna get out of here.
0: We got a matinee to catch, guys. Yep. Till next time. See ya.